Stoicism, particularly the British, are, you know, we're very uh, known for that, stiff upper lip and all that. <laughs> and it has its place. However, um, it can be taken to an unhealthy degree where it creates people who are stunted and emotionally unavailable. And there are times to be stoic, and then there are times not to be stoic. Welcome to the 1000 Days Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davy. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol. And I'm also an amazing father, husband, son, friend, leader, lover, and master life coach. And I spend every minute of every day helping people to live a self-led life after alcohol. And... It's been a good month here at Strive this month. March is Relationships Month. Why is it Relationships Month if we are a podcast that helps you quit alcohol? Because I believe at the heart of all addiction is a lack of relational literacy or certainly a um, an adequate understanding and skill set of this very important topic because we don't we're not really taught it at school right and in my decades worth of experience of coaching people and working with people in groups and witnessing how people go through their everyday um, human condition style struggles relationships with themselves relationships with other people relationships with nature with the universe with god People struggle in those areas, and that is why they turn to alcohol, okay? So it's really important for you to understand that the Strive way, what we're all about at Strive, is living this kick-ass life, this amazing life after alcohol, okay? And that is why we work on being the best person we can be in our relationships, the best parent we can be, eating the best stuff, doing the best health stuff, getting into our self-energy, our kind of like soul-centered energy as often as we can do. Really important. So what we've been doing on Relationship this month, uh, we listened to Darren Silva talking about relationship with nature. We listened to Catherine, Kathleen Hendricks talking about relationship longevity. And within Strive, uh, we've had training on the importance of self-energy, in relationships. And on Monday, we had a uh, training on the um, the understanding and the nuance around masculine and feminine dynamics in our relationship. This Monday coming up, we're going to be talking about attachment theory in Strive. There's going to be some training on attachment theory. And then the following month, we'll close out relationship month with communication skills. All right. So if you want to get involved in that, if you want to get the recordings of uh, self-energy, you want to get the recordings of masculine feminine dynamics, and you want to learn more about your attachment style, and you want to learn more about communication and how all that ties into addiction to alcohol and living a self-led life, then come and join us at Strive, okay? Um, in addition to that, you get access to the Strive Method, which is over 120 coaching videos designed to help you stop drinking alcohol and live a kick-ass life. You'll get access to our beautiful Strive community, and you'll get access to our Strive online meetings on Zoom and the coaching, all right? Um, we just had a wonderful, beautiful lady from North Wales just recently join us. And she said within the first couple of days, I think I may be a Strive lifer. It's my new addiction. 
Maybe addiction could be a good thing sometimes. And then I woke up this morning and felt like a weight had been lifted. The power of community and sharing. So powerful, folks. I know uh, because a lot of people who are in Strive and a lot of people I do one-on-one work with, they actually listen to this podcast, some of them for many years, before they decided to make that extra step and reach out and say, Lee, I need your help. If you're one of those people, if you've been listening to me for a long time and you're doing this alone and you're still not getting the results you need, come and join us at Strive, okay? Email me at thestrivemethod at gmail.com and I will tell you how to join and I will answer all of your questions, all right? Now, continuing with Relationships Month, some of us in our lifetimes will face the specter of um, terrible loss. Uh, our partner uh, may be may transition and um, away from this world, and we will have to learn to deal with um, that grief. Okay, uh, the grief of their loss, um, and the way that that impacts us on a daily basis and impacts our family. Okay, um, also building up to that, if we know um, that there is. Um, a likelihood that there's going to be a loss of life. We have to deal with that whole entire buildup and all the um, really uncomfortable emotions and conversations that come up around that topic. And then you have the grief of divorce. Um, when you separate from someone that you've been with for many, many, many years, uh, but they still exist and they're still a part of your life, um, and but you still have that ache in your heart, right? And then there's the grief of loss of animals and pets. There's the grief of loss of alcohol and ending your relationship with alcohol. So grief and mourning is a really natural part of being human, but it is an aspect of humanity that is often shunned and not given enough attention. And because of that, we often turn to alcohol in our dysfunctional states as a way to, um, well, to use it as a compensatory strategy to deal with the pain. Okay, so I wanted to get somebody on the show to talk about this because I think it's really important. So we've welcomed Lisa Dinhofer back. Uh, Lisa's been on the show before. She um, also worked with us for a while as a Strive coach. And Lisa Dinhofer, uh, she's known as a crisis tamer. I love that word, right? Um, And she works with subject matter and circumstances that most people turn away from. And that's why we wanted to get her on here. She mentors companies through traumatic and destabilizing events, workplace abuse, and crisis communications to regain stability, establish a new normal, and build resilience. Lisa was an employee at the World Trade Center during the 1993 bombing and was still working in New York City during 9-11. She draws from those first-hand experiences of trauma in the workplace and lessons learned from other workplace tragedies. Lisa is a certified thanatologist, a grief expert with a subspeciality in trauma. She's a trained counselor, trained mediator, and crisis communication specialist with 18 plus years of professional experience, training, consulting, coaching, debriefing, and public speaking. She is frequently called upon for debriefing and strategic advisement following emergent workplace events such as employee death. And for the last year, Lisa has been sought out as a consultant and facilitator in response to the organizational stress that COVID-19 has been bringing into the workplace, right? So today, me and Lisa touch upon grief and mourning, uh, preparing for it, um, dealing with it when it shows up, and a whole lot more, okay? So without further ado, I'll shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of Lisa Dinhofer. And if anybody 
need someone to talk to after they've listened to this podcast, please reach out to me at strive method at gmail.com and we'll make that happen. Okay. Cause this is a very difficult and challenging subject, but a very human one. All right. Much love everybody. Lisa Dinhoffer, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure being here. Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, the, what I want to talk to you today is um, a little bit of a heavy topic. Um, but it's a really important one, you know, and um, I want to talk about grief and I want to talk about mourning. Um, and I'd, I'd like to start with um, the specter of personal loss. So when you know you're going to lose somebody because they have a terminal illness or somebody or something like that, and we are using alcohol as a way to deal with that catastrophic kind of experience, um, which, of course, we have no training for or anything or experience for it. Um, and I would just like to uh, hear from you and your, your experience. What is, what is going on there and how can we... Deal with it in a way. Deal with it in a way where we're not using alcohol. I know it's a really big thing so, to start yeah, let me, with. Um, let me unpack this a little bit. So there's no such thing as training to be in grief, right? Right. Um, grief is is organic to not only human beings but mammals. We we see animals grieving. Um, we see whales grieving. We, grief is the expression of intense pain from separation, from separation of people we love, places we love, situations we love. And it is not exclusive to the experience of physical death. So as you asked in your question, um, you can feel grief because someone you love is it, within the challenge of a terminal illness, but we can also experience grief and anticipatory grief when we know divorce is coming, mm, mm. when a breakup is coming. And that feeling is not exclusive only to the person who's being broken up with. People who do the breaking up with also feel grief and pain. Mm. And that gets confused or is misunderstood and, and very unexpected. And people tend to think, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. And they reunite with this person only to have this, you know, come undone, you know, months later. Mm. So grief is not something that we are trained for, um, trained that we can train to do, but every human being will grieve at some point. And each time we grieve, it will be different because what we're grieving is different. The relationship is different. And grief is very much an expression of the loss of the meaning of that relationship, whether it be with a person, a place, a thing. And I include animals in that big time grief of animals. Mm. So the heart of your question about using alcohol to um, somehow, quote unquote, cope with that. Well, first of all, that's not coping. That's avoidance. Mm. 
It is an attempt to medicate away the pain. Mm. And you can't run away from grief. It will remain and it will wait for you. Years it will wait. What alcohol or drugs or any other thing that you're using, it can be sex, it can be shopping, it can be food, whatever you're doing to try to avoid the pain, dull the pain, numb yourself from the pain, you're not getting away from grief. You're just really going to make it harder for yourself because at some point, grief will have its due. Mm. So. You know, people who use alcohol and drugs and other forms of addictive behaviors, gambling, shopping, food, sex, all of that, they're running away from a feeling to run towards another feeling. You can't outrun pain. You can't outrun grief. So it's a dysfunctional form of behavior in loss. And ultimately, it's not going to get rid of what you're trying to run away from. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Um, I mean, we can explore it deeper. One of the things that you said there that that was quite profound, I think, is um, we cannot train, you know, we're not trained to deal with grief. It is within us. It's organic. We are, we're human beings and right. grief is part of is part of the process. I guess I guess I heard this on a, a podcast the other day. It was Sam Harris on Absolutely Mental with Ricky Gervais, and they were talking about the merits of having cats and dogs. And one mm-hmm. of the merits they talked about of having cats and dogs was it helps your children to get used to grief, like the grief of 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 animals and enables you to talk about life and death and, and to experience those feelings. Um, so, so let's just focus on that point a minute. Um, we know as human beings, like it's just a part of who we are that we can part deal of life. with it. It's part of life and we can deal with it. So how can we turn it around when we're running away from it? Because I guess it's, it's easy for us to say, hey, you're, Joe Bloggs, you, you are equipped to deal with this right now. But they, they don't want to face it. Well, saying that it's a part of life and that you're equipped to deal with it, those are two different things. Not everybody is equipped to deal with what life delivers on our plate on a daily basis. Great point. And, you know, grief is a part of life and you can't avoid loss. Loss is a part of life. Every single thing in our life, including our own life, is temporary. Mm. Your plants, your animals, the people you love, maybe what you do for work, what you do for fun, your house, everything is temporary. Everything can change in a heartbeat from circumstances that you can't see in advance, maybe, or that you certainly cannot control in advance. And I think that's one of the things that people fear the most uh, is what might happen to them in life that would cause these intense emotional feelings of loss and grief 
that can't be controlled. And so people, some people go into these highly controlling behaviors to try to control loss, but it never works. And that is a form of resistance that takes an enormous amount of bandwidth and emotional energy. That is a thief of life because we don't really commit and invest in life and what life can bring us for fear of losing. And so actually we strip ourselves of really having what we could have from the fear of losing it. It's a conundrum that, you know, human beings experience, but animals certainly don't experience. Animals are all in. Uh, And it's why they're so wonderful at, those times when we're grieving, they accept us unconditionally. And human beings have a really hard time doing that. But they, on a physical level, they change us on a cellular level when we're grieving, when we're in physical pain, when we're frightened. Um, Petting an animal changes us on a physiological level. Animals seem to know when we need attention and they force us to pay attention to them, whether it's the cat that sits on the keyboard that forces you to stop typing, the dog that jumps in your lap that doesn't allow you to do anything but pay attention to them and love them and pet them because they know you need it. Mm. What a phenomenal um, ability they have. And yes, animals teach us about loss because when they leave us, it's intensely painful. Mm-hmm. Our, our culture doesn't honor that loss. It's a kind of disenfranchised grief, which means it's a type of loss that the community doesn't acknowledge with the same level of empathy or understanding. Uh, there's this notion of, well, you know, it's been two weeks, come on. Or get another dog or, you know, go busy yourself with something else. Um, These, for people who are pet owners, these are members of the family. You you wouldn't say that to someone who's lost a child, Mm. right? I, I would question a little bit what you relayed in this podcast. Um, I, I wouldn't want to look at animals as a mechanism to learn about grief. I think that would steal the quality of what you can experience with an animal, anything in our lives will teach us about loss. Mm. Anything, mm. anything will teach us about loss. A, a, a cherished object from an ancestor or someone in our life that died a very long time ago, this is all we have of them. And it gets lost in a fire or it's stolen or it gets accidentally thrown out that can be intensely painful as well because that object it's a it's a connective it's a connection to someone or something that's no longer here that we can't get back so anything can teach us about grief or loss mm. when i think about grief my i go very naturally to um I just lost somebody in my life and now I'm going to grieve that loss. Mm-hmm. But what, what about being in the moment of that, knowing that there's loss? I assume the grieving process begins before that person has passed. So like if I, if I yes. know Liza's got a terminal illness, now I'm, I'm in grief. Yes, so, you are. So, so what do I need to know? 
about about that situation, do you think? So that's called anticipatory grief or anticipatory loss. And that is a different experience, a different kind of loss experience than um, a a very sudden loss. You, You just said goodbye to your spouse. They walk out the door and literally 15 minutes later, they're in a fatal car accident. That's very sudden, unexpected, traumatic loss. Those have that's a different experience. You're going to experience different things with that than you would an anticipatory loss where, you know, someone you love has a terminal illness. They're not getting any better. Treatment options have, um, you know, we're, we're done with that. And the most we can do for them um, is care for them, provide care, palliative care, comfort care, companionship um, until their transition. And particularly if you are a primary caregiver, you go through what's known in the research as anticipatory grief, anticipatory loss. And it doesn't hurt any less than a sudden loss. It's different. And so many times there are these grief contests about what's worse. And someone will say, well, at least you knew it was coming. It wasn't a shock. And that's so reductionistic and so unhelpful to that person Hmm. than comparing them to someone that had that sudden loss. It's not whether it's more or less, it's different. So you're going through all of these little deaths with the example that you've given, you know, someone with a terminal illness, you see these little deaths along the way, the death of them as social beings, because they can't leave the house anymore. They can't even get out of bed the death of maybe even their personality because of the progression of the disease or the medication, it changes who they are. And oftentimes we might not like who they've become. And there's a lot of guilt with that and a lot of conflict with that because they can become very difficult. Alzheimer's is like that. Some patients become very combative, very hostile. It's hard to like that. Um, and, And we feel guilt for you know, how we feel about being on the, the receiving end of that and the caring end of that. The practice, if you will, the natural cognitive emotional rehearsal that goes on in our life about what the final moment will be like and what it will be like afterwards. And oftentimes there's a feeling of relief and that can create all kinds of, of guilt, but that is normal. Because when we're under tremendous pressure and a burden, and that burden is lifted, doesn't mean we didn't love that person. It doesn't mean we weren't devoted to that person. It just simply means that burden has been lifted. We'll have all other kinds of grief and loss experiences to feel, but but a sense of relief for yourself, for that person who's no longer suffering, that's part of grief as as well. So when we see what is coming, when we see the gradual dis- diminishment of them as a person, we see their physical discomfort. We might see the emotional distress of they're facing their mortality and, and all of what that means. This is all part of anticipatory loss, anticipatory grief that absolutely begins way before the physical loss. And at that moment, if you are there at that moment, 
it still can be quite shocking, even though you cognitively understood this was coming because we always think there's going to be one more day, one more hour. And when it happens, it is shocking. It, it is almost difficult to describe being with someone where literally one second before life force was present in this body and in this room and one second later, it's gone. Mm. And it's it's something profound that happens that is invisible. You you might stop you, you might see that person stop breathing and but that life force, that force that was, you know, giving them breath and, and their heart beating, it just it it goes. And that can be very shocking. And what we think we might experience can be very different from what we actually do experience. So that can be part of the shock and surprise as well attached with anticipatory loss. Mm, thank you for that. And I know that the, uh, the, the answer to this is very individual, but um, I want to cover it anyway. Um, when I think about somebody being in palliative care, you know, like somebody who's suffering from a terminal illness, um, I immediately think of that person um, getting all the help and support that they need. And then I can see how the person who is caring for them or who loves them, whether that would be a daughter or a son or a husband or a wife or a mother or a father, um, gets no support at all because for a number of reasons one the focus is all on the person who is suffering quote-unquote suffering and we don't recognize that there is the person who is suffering from the anticipatory grief so what help and when i mean we're raising awareness of this now but what help type of help does do these people need um, who are suffering? And we might uh, not see that. The answer is a, a lot of help and people in palli palliative care. Um, there often are respite services and care services for carers, particularly if you are in hospice. Um, hospice is an interdisciplinary service so that the people who are carers and the family, they do get, um, emotional support and uh, and help, so they're not totally, um, you know, alone. But if someone is not um, participating in a kind of formalized system or care like hospice or palliative care, if they're just trying to do everything themselves, then yes, it's extremely isolating. It is very hard physically and emotionally, and those people absolutely need help. And many times they're the first ones to say they don't need help and they really do. And they suffer when they're not willing to allow that help in. Mm -hmm. And help can be in the form of respite care, literally, so they can go, you know, lie down and, and take a nap or go grocery shopping or just go outside for a walk. Um, it can also be emotional support about what they're feeling and what they're going through as a carer and as the person attached to the, the person who is dying and what it feels like, what the anticipation of that death might be feeling like. There's all different levels of care and 
um, taking care of the house if they're still in the house, getting food in the house, keeping the house clean, um, you know, doing the laundry, all those basic life things that when we're caring for someone who's terminally ill, um, there's only so much of us to go around. And if we're not willing to accept in help, all of that stuff falls by the wayside and it contributes to um, the isolation and the difficulty that person is experiencing. How important is emotional release? So I'm thinking of, um, uh, say, somebody is um, dealing with this on their own at home and there's a certain element of overwhelm involved yeah. in it. Um, so then they are they, they don't want that feeling, so they drink to avoid that feeling, and, right. and it's all and it's it's always going to chase after them. How important is it to just feel angry, to just feel sad, to just feel that injustice? You know, um, there's a thing about human beings that um, because we are emotional creatures, um, we need ventilation. When we're experiencing extremely strong um, emotions and going through difficult experiences, um, we can feel intense emotional responses to that anger, rage, deep sadness, grief, despair that can be quite long lasting. And until we allow for ventilation, it's just like a bottle that's being shaken that has a top on it that, that you know, at some point, what's inside is going to burst through, mm. right? So there's all kinds of ways of, you know, avoiding that um, by just shutting down and drinking because you're numb. And it's the only time you feel anything is when you're high from drinking or doing drugs or whatever, or gambling or whatever it is. Um, but that's a pretty dysfunctional alternative to numbness. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are not raised within an environment, within a family of origin that teaches emotional regulation, that teaches how to manage these strong feelings. And we look at dysfunctional role models in our family of origin that maybe also struggled with some form of addiction or really dysfunctional way of coping with emotion, including being emotionally unavailable, right? So when we have an experience in our lives that pushes through those coping mechanisms, whether they were functional or dysfunctional before, we all experience a loss um, at some point in our lives, and often more than once, that overpowers our usual coping mechanisms. And that becomes really frightening and, and worrying. And that is a time when we're going to learn how to manage that. We're, we're going to learn also what we're made of. We're going to learn who our friends are. But we're also going to learn how much we love ourselves, if at all with what we're willing to allow in the help that we're willing to allow in that is available. All you have to do is look around. It will manifest for you ask for it. It will be there. But if we're not willing to ask for that help, then we relegate ourselves to isolation and isolation intensifies emotional pain. Mm. 
I want to so one of the healthiest things that can happen when you're in in you know emotional pain is to be isolated. It's why solitary confinement is so cruel because human beings on a neurobiochemical our brains require human contact. Mm-hmm. I want to touch upon that actually. Um, the, the two things came to mind then when you was talking about dysfunctional role models. I, I was thinking about dysfunction, dysfunctional culture. Um, mm-hmm. So imagine you're a um, a father and a husband of somebody who's um, in palliative care, for example. Then the dysfunctional culture that I can think of is you as a man must keep your shit together and mm. you cannot show your grief or your sorrow or your sadness to your children. Right. You've got to keep it together because they're really upset. Whereas I'm thinking to myself, wow, how healthy that would be to fall apart together in each mm-hmm. other's presence, but it is so contrary to mm-hmm. the way that my culture in UK is. Do you want to speak into that? Yeah. Um, and we saw a, a big sea change um, in the UK, particularly in England, when Princess Diana died. And it caught the Queen off guard, didn't it? Um, the whole royal family had never experienced such a public outpouring of emotion. And I remember um, talking with my colleagues who also, you know, work in the grief space, that a lot of people were, um, yes, they were grieving Diana, but they were also grieving their own losses. And there was a public space. It was allowable. Mm -hmm. It was acceptable. There was a reason. And it didn't matter if people thought you were grieving about Diana, but you were also really grieving about your own stuff. Um, And, you know, the queen comes from a time, a generation where that was not done. (laughs) It (laughs) was not done. (laughs) And she's from the generation also of World War II, keep calm, carry on. Mm. Um, And this notion of not showing emotion defined as strength, it's quite dysfunctional and wildly inaccurate and it does a disservice to everyone around you because it can put pressure on people not to feel and express what they're feeling when that's one of the healthiest things you could do at the moment because again that ventilation you get it out um it there's relief there you doesn't mean you'll stop grieving or you stop you know feeling pain but you, you get it out. There's a release. You, you keep releasing. It's like waves. It's like trying to hold back waves. The ocean is crashing to the shore. Right. And so that would be a very dysfunctional thing to try to do, because number one, it would be impossible. And can you imagine the energy, the physical and emotional energy it would take to try to do that mm. when it's going to come crashing inevitably? no matter how much you try to to hold it back. And so when people are not allowed um, in their spaces of normal comfort, whether that be in their home or within the building of their spiritual community or wherever they are, even in hospital, if they're not allowed for that 
wave of grief to crash over them and then recede. It's a very unhealthy and also painful. It just exacerbates the pain. So with men, this notion that they're not emotional creatures, it just defies their humanity. Of course they are. They have deep emotional connections to their children and the people that they love. They may experience it differently and express it differently, but they're just as much emotional creatures as women are. It's just what's being allowed and expected um, that can stunt a person if they're not allowed to show their emotions as they happen. And you know, as a child, when, when your children experience and express emotions, that becomes a teachable moment for the parents to help them learn how to regulate, self-regulate, and express those emotions in a way that is safe for them and safe for the people around them. And that is cathartic. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point. It's why we cry. It's why we have tears. It is the body's way of, you know, practicing catharsis. So we can have that relief and to tell men or expect men not to show that because of this notion of, well, they have to be strong for others. There's no such thing, right? Mm. Um, Men not experiencing and expressing emotion doesn't help someone else be strong. Um, it, It provides a very dysfunctional example and pressure on others to do the same, which only leads to more pain and complicated grieving. Whereas when men are allowed to cry and experience that, just like when the wave crashes the shore, it recedes. Hmm. People will cry and they and they express that emotion and then they get themselves sorted again, right? It's It's not a permanent condition. And we all don't have this necessarily at the same time, unless maybe we're we're at a funeral or at funeral at the side of a hospital bed. But one person is is grieving and crying and you know going through all those normal emotions, and the people around them can help and comfort. And then it switches off, and and you can do that for others when you're in a place of of regulation. So we can all be there for each other. And it eliminates the awkwardness. We could just eliminate the awkwardness and the false notion of shame around expressing emotion. I really believe that we would be reaching less for those substances and activities that are addictive because people engaging in that are just trying to feel better. They're trying to chase an emotion and run away from a different emotion. Mm. And that's very temporary and it doesn't work. It works maybe for the moment. And even if they don't feel better, they feel numb, which they think is the only thing maybe they're going to be able to feel other than terrible. Mm. But it doesn't teach them how to experience these feelings and regulate and make it okay for others and help others when it's their turn to to feel that way. So I think it's a lot better for men than it used to be. We see men cry on television all the time now. We Mm. see newscasters cry. We see people in the military cry. And we saw uh, the U.S. Attorney General 
um, Merrick Garland tear up and his voice crack at discussing a recent um, conviction for a horrible murder that happened in this country where the mother of the man that was killed knew that the three people who chased after this man and, and killed him like, like an animal. And he was relaying how he couldn't imagine how a mother copes with that. This is the U.S. Attorney General mm-hmm. tearing up and cracking a voice, which I think is a very helpful example to follow. We're seeing this in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. The anguish men are experiencing and showing saying goodbye to their loved ones of all ages because they have to stay and fight. And it's not, it's not a guarantee that they're going to survive. Mm -hmm. The anguish we're seeing on men's faces, the tears. Men are just people. They're just people too. Everybody is just a person. Mm And strong emotion, extreme joy, extreme love, extreme happiness, extreme hopefulness. There's no shame around those feelings and they can be extreme. It's just a different side of the emotional lives of human beings from grief and pain and rage and anger. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm just interrupting our conversation with me and Lisa to just let you know that the Strive Method book, Control Alcohol in 30 Days Before It Controls You for the Next 30 Years, is available at www.1000daysober.com. It will be the best $4.75 you will ever invest in, the most cost-effective and power-packed way that you will be able to become someone that doesn't drink alcohol for 30 days. So you can get a feel of what it's like and learn some of the concepts that we have in the Strive Method. We will cover in that book elements of the Strive Method from the stuck phase, the thought phase, the ready phase, the initiative phase, vigilance phase, and the evolution phase, and we will be able to give you a brand new outlook on what alcohol is all about, the truth of alcohol, baby. We're going to really open your eyes to it. So check that out at www.1000daysober.com. And back now to Lisa Dinhofer. I can uh, I can imagine a, a father actually with his children. Um, let's say his um, his wife is in palliative care. I can imagine him thinking to himself, "If I keep my shit together and don't show emotion, then the kids will think that I'm all right." But I think the kids are smarter than that, and their yeah. emotional intelligence will kick in, and they'll actually be thinking, oh, "Dad's not really." handling this very well and they they will then start to worry about their their father where a good old cry together would probably the kids would be like okay dad's dealing with this in in the right way yeah i mean this notion that crying we we pathologize grief and and it's a natural organic response to loss and or impending loss Hmm. And a lot of people, because they have been trained or they feel unable to show grief, it becomes anger. It gets expressed as anger because anger is a very acceptable emotion to show. And it, you know, it becomes explosive rage, Mm -hmm. hostility, you know, um, depression, 
Um, these are all things that, you know, we're not necessarily shamed for, for having like we are with grief, but if we would allow ourselves the space and we, if we would allow ourselves to be comforted by others, this is another thing that um, we don't teach our children very well because we're constantly trying to protect them from what life is. We, we don't want to take them to hospital. We don't want to take them to funerals. We don't want to take them to hospice because we want to, quote unquote, protect them. But this is life on life's terms. And every time something like this comes into our world, it's a teachable moment for children to show them how to give comfort and how to accept comfort for when it's their time mm. and children I, desperately want to know what to do in these circumstances. They're such mm. natural creatures. They cried a moment's drop of a hat when they're feeling unhappy about something. Right. Um, and they're told um, and trained to stop that crying and don't, don't do that when it's really quite healthy. And they do also don't have the words to articulate but they watch us at times of grief and death and loss. They take their cues from us. And so if they see this, this chronic stoicism, and, you know, stoicism, particularly the British are, you know, we're very uh, known for that, stiff of Berlin and all that. <laughs> and it has its place. However, um, it can be taken to an unhealthy degree where it creates people who are stunted and emotionally unavailable. And there are times to be stoic and then there are times not to be stoic. And if we can help our children and the people we live with, even the people we are in a teaching role with, to know when stoicism is necessary and when it's actually damaging mm. um i i think that's a really helpful helpful lesson so i encourage anybody who is in a situation of hospice right now or caregiving at home to reject the notion that 24 7 stoicism is what's necessary to help you quote unquote get through it there are times we need to not try so hard to get through it and allow ourselves to feel what we are feeling, which is a testimony to the relationship and the attachment to that person, place, or thing. Mm. Yeah. It's an expression of love. Why would we withhold an expression of love? Yeah, I agree. I, um, I remember when I was younger, my next-door neighbor, um, he committed suicide at 14. And I went to the funeral and I've been to lots of funerals uh, by that time. And, and since this one particularly stuck out in my mind because um, of his, of his mother's um, outpouring of grief, the, the, um, the ferocity of it, the, 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 um, the, just the primal visceral screaming. Right. And I remember it thinking to myself at the time, Oh, this is because this is what it's like when you lose a child. But then I actually thought afterwards, most people at funerals in the UK that I've been to, they actually stop themselves from doing that. 
right. there, is, there is a it, it doesn't matter if it's a child that they, they are literally stopping themselves from letting the process flow and this woman didn't and because she didn't for mo- it was a shock it was a shocking thing to witness because right. we wasn't used to it right right and when you think about it again i'm going to go back to the queen because she's been there forever you know she's <laughs> yeah. she's just been there forever um and she was raised in a time where stoicism especially in the worst of times is expected and it's part of your duty to those people around you. And of course, for her um, in a leadership role and to not be stoic, you are not doing your duty. You are letting people down. And when it comes to grief and emotional pain, that just is wildly inaccurate to human beings. Mm. But we take the cues of those people around us who are adults or authority figures and you know the monarchy has been practicing this stoicism for centuries right so it's it's a cultural standard um far more still in the uk it's better now than it was but i think still more as a standard in the uk than in the united states and certainly other cultures where it is an expectation that you wail It is an expectation that you express the emotional agony and the anguish. And if you don't, it is considered extraordinarily disrespectful to the decedent and to the decedent family. Mm -hmm. We're very much driven by culture in how we talk about death, how we experience it, how we deliver death notifications, how we approach death from a terminal illness standpoint. And we're often praised for never complaining, particularly, you know, those who are the patient. She never complained. It's, I mean, you can, like clockwork, see it in the obituary. She never complained. Well, bloody hell, you know, what's wrong with, with complaining mm-hmm. that you're in pain, chronic pain, and that, you know, you're dying and you don't feel ready to die. What What is wrong with, with complaining about it? I know. Why do we, again, that stoicism? I mean, we're just, it, it doesn't allow us to be human beings. Mm. And can you imagine the comfort when a person who's experiencing that psychic pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain, and physical pain is given the space allowed the space it's one of the things that hospice patients complain about the most and i remember uh, working with my own hospice patients people from the outside they would tell us things they would i've heard you know a lot of family secrets and things because they would say my family won't let me talk about this they won't let me talk about how i feel about dying they won't let me talk about these secrets are, or I don't want to go yet. I don't feel like I'm done or I really want to go. I can't wait already. Yeah. I'm sick of this. They, they won't let me talk about this. And it just adds to the pain. Yeah. Right. And those conversations can be so deeply connected and, and engaging. And when families allow that, they're so grateful afterwards that they had those 
those conversations. It may have been one of the most deepest, most affecting conversation they had with that person. And it had to wait all the way to the end because of this stoicism. Mm -hmm. And when you don't get to have that, that's another loss on top of the loss. There's no making up for it. I can see that. Um, There's another aspect of this um, dysfunctional society that I want to cover. You touched upon it a little bit earlier on, but I just want to accentuate it, is because in society we are conditioned to keep grief at a distance, Mm -hmm. when, when we're actually going through it, there is a real danger that our friends disappear because right. they don't they don't know how to cope or to reach out or to connect and then whilst that happens you yourself who's going through this grief have now got an extra layer of grief because you're isolated and you desperately right. need your friends and they're not there um can we talk into that because that's a very yeah. real thing as well right it it happens a lot because people feel so awkward um this fear of I'm going to say something that's going to make it worse, or I don't know what to say, or, you know, we've never really had an emotional conversation. How can I have that now? Or I'm so worried that, you know, um, I'm going to make it worse for this person. And, oh, we get ourselves so wrapped up in what we're fearing rather than just show up and serve, Mm. show up for them. You know, in the Jewish tradition, when you, Uh, that first week of mourning is called Shiva. And when you go to what's known as a Shiva house, that is a home where the immediate members of the family are grieving. There are all these little rituals that seem innocuous, but they really are very helpful to that person. The first thing is you never ring the doorbell to a Shiva house because that would force the person inside to come and answer the door. Mm. The Shiva door is is open and you come in and you never go up to that, that person and ask them, you know, how are you? You wait for them to come to you, right? And you, the role of you being there is to be present. Whether they want to talk about the person or not. Um, sharing stories about this person, having a good laugh about the stupid thing that they did or said or, or whatever, sharing the memories. This is all very palliative. It's like a salve to the soul. And other times it's to sit in silence with that person if that's all they can manage. But it's so that they won't be alone. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, People in bereavement talk all the time about being so surprised that the people they thought they would get the support from disappear. And they get support from people who like seemingly come out of the woodwork or they never would have um, expected that from them. And it's so deeply wounding because it does change a relationship when you're in deep pain and a person you thought that you had a reciprocal relationship with reciprocal respect, reciprocal love doesn't show up for you. It's an abandonment at a Mm -hmm. time when 
you already feel abandoned maybe by the person who died. Death can actually feel like an abandonment. And particularly with, with when someone dies by suicide, that is a type of grief and loss that is very different. It has a very different quality to it than like a terminal illness. Not surprised at all by the response that you saw with the mum. Mm-hmm. Um, when someone dies by suicide, and by the way, we, we don't say commit suicide any longer because families of those who've died by suicide feel it's deeply disrespectful that that person couldn't commit to anything. And they were so deeply depressed um, or mentally ill or whatever that this wasn't a commitment that they made as much uh, as a desperate last resort. But Suicide is self-homicide. There is such a high degree of preventability. And we know from the research, the the grief research, that the higher the level of preventability, the more likely of bereavement difficulties, complicated bereavement outcomes, and anger, deep anger Mm -hmm. and deep anguish because, quote unquote, it didn't have to happen. Yeah. Right? So... Um, it's a very difficult form of loss to deal with, um, and its effects can linger the rest of your life uh, for those who are on the receiving end or have experienced this. And I highly recommend if you have experienced um, death by suicide by someone you care about deeply um, to, to get some help dealing with that. Mm. It's tricky. Mm. Thank you for that, Lisa. Um there's another part of this that I wanted to explore with you. Um, when somebody is caring for somebody who's um, suffering and in pain and has maybe been told that they don't have that long to live, and you yourself are struggling with certain things and you feel ashamed to say, hey, I'm struggling and it doesn't even have to be, I'm struggling with this situation. It it could be like, I don't know, you've just been declined a promotion in work or Mm -hmm. you um, feel really angry because you didn't progress your business in the way you wanted it to. Mm -hmm. And then you tell yourself that you're not allowed to have feelings because your feelings are nowhere near as big and as uh, grandiose as as uh, my wife or my husband's because their their their, their life um, on this planet as we know it is is at risk here. So th- it almost seems like there's um it's like we're we're sticking ourselves in a coffin and we're not allowed. We don't feel like we're allowed anyway to express anything. And I just wanted to just talk into that a little bit, if you could. Yeah, that's a really um, helpful point that you've brought up. And I love the analogy of sticking ourselves in a coffin. I I look at it more as we're suffocating ourselves mm-hmm. because when someone we love is dying, the world doesn't stop spinning um, and life doesn't stop delivering what it delivers to everyone else. And we, again, get into this this mindset of a contest of, of, you know, what's worthy of our attention or what's worse and what's it. It's not binary. We can have feelings about not getting the promotion or someone breaking up with us. Or maybe we just got a diagnosis we're not all that thrilled with. 
Life is still happening to us. And it doesn't mean that in order to be helpful to others or respectful, that we have to stop experiencing and allowing the feelings that we're having because of what's happening to us. It's not that they're less important. And this is why ventilation is so Mm. necessary, because if we can you know, get into a space where we can be with ourselves and experience what's happening to us in other realms. It creates space within us for us to hold on to what others will ask us to hold for them or place on us for this other grieving situation. It's when we don't ventilate and we don't have the space where we begin to feel overwhelmed and we either explode or we shut down. People die every single day. And that's been true since the beginning of time. And no one on this earth will get away with not experiencing the death of someone we love, including ourselves. Mm. We're going to lose everything. Mm. We're going to lose our plants and our pets and things we love, objects we love, and people we love, and we're going to lose our own life. Everything in life is temporary. And life doesn't decide, well, I'll just give them this one piece of grief to deal with right now, and I'll hold off on these other things. You know, life doesn't work like that. We can be the unfortunate recipients of multiple loss. Losing five members of our family because a mortar shell hit our house or a car accident Mm. or we lost the job, then we lost the house, then my wife got a diagnosis and now she's dead. Life can be extremely grueling and hard and seem so bloody unfair. And It's a fool's errand to try to decide, well, I'll only grieve this now and everything else has to go on the shelf because grief doesn't behave like that, Mm -hmm. right? And so you have to let yourself off the hook when you're experiencing multiple loss because what you're grieving at the moment or who you're grieving this day, if there's multiple people that, that you've lost, That's just how grief has shown up for you on this day or that moment. It has nothing to do with how much you love them. It has nothing to do with what was more important. It's just how that grief is showing up or how it's getting triggered. And people who, you know, I worked with someone once whose whose son and husband were killed and together in a car crash. And the first month she was guilty all the time because When she was grieving for this one, she felt guilty. She wasn't grieving for the other one. And what does that say about me as a person? And what kind of role model am I for my children who are left? And she realized, i got to let myself off the hook. I like that statement. Today, I'm grieving for my son because something triggered me or that's just how it's showing up. And other moments, I'm grieving for my husband. It's not a contest. You're not being graded. This isn't a final exam. Grieve and experience what shows up when it shows up and give yourself a break or help others who are experiencing this a break. It's not a reflection of who they are as people or how much they loved. It's simply an organic process and this is how it's showing up. 
And maybe grief is showing up for you differently than it did last time. And that's to be expected because everything we lose is a function of that attachment we had to that person, place, or thing. So it's going to be different every single time. It's not rote. It's not this process or plan that goes the same way every time. There's no stages. You know, this stages model was something that came from the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who did seminal work on terminal patients, terminally ill patients. This had nothing to do with people who were bereaved in the bereavement community this her stages was what she observed in patients facing their own death her work was misappropriated onto the bereaved community right right right. and it took decades for this whole notion about stages to you know all of that so don't chain yourself to this game plan of well i got to go through this and then i'm going through that or i skip this i'm at Experience what shows up for you when it shows up and allow it in in others. Thank you. Um, I know we've coming up to the hour now. I, there was some there was one more thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Do you still have time? I do. So, awesome. So we 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 talk, we've been talking a lot about um the difficulties and the challenge of somebody who is in anticipatory grief or is grieving. But let's just talk a little bit uh, uh, for a moment about the person who's going through the palliative care process, mm-hmm. because I, I can imagine not only is that person facing the specter of death as we know it and the unknown of what will happen beyond that, um, but I can imagine there's a lot that they would like to talk about or express, but again, are um, kind of... Um, they, they feel suffocated that they're not allowed to talk about that because of culture. And also they don't want to upset the, the person right. who's caring for them or their kids or whatever. And then there's the other side of that where the, the carers or the children or the mothers or the husbands, they don't really know how to approach this because they don't want to talk about death. Right. right. Um, let's just talk into that a little bit. Uh, if you've yeah, got time. So every, uh, yeah, I absolutely do. Um, everything you just, um, Illustrated, I saw play out um, when I was doing hospice work. Right. So um, there were times when, you know, in hospice work, I saw things that science can't explain. Um, And I, it taught, it was a great teacher for me. And I learned how to be comfortable with it and not try to figure out how is this happening or, or any, just, you know, accept what was happening. And I experienced a patient once that um, the family was freaking out because they felt that she was hallucinating and this and that. And I recognized immediately she wasn't hallucinating. She had one foot already on the other side. And she was, for lack of a better term, communicating. Mm. And her family was so freaked out and they just didn't know what to do. And so they they were... Um, they were agitating her. They were agitating the, the, the patient rather than just accepting and allowing and observing and being there. They, they were agitating her to get her to stop doing what she was doing because it frightened them so much and it made her death harder. Right. Um, I'm thinking of another patient who was a Holocaust survivor 
Um, and she had a very labored, difficult death. And she just, her daughters felt that she could not let go because as a child, to escape the Nazis, she went into um, the, the forest and was hiding in the forest for some time. But that was before um, she saw members of her own family have to wash the streets with a toothbrush under the butt of a, of a gun. And it was just inculcated, ingrained in her. You will survive. A lot of her family did not, but she escaped to the woods and she went through horrible things to survive. And her daughters said they felt that she couldn't let go. Mm. And she just couldn't let go. And she suffered as a, as a result of that. Other hospice patients, I, I'm thinking in terms of one, she was, again, communicating with the other side and just absolutely ble- beaming and her eyes were tracking across the room and she was blind, but she was waving to people and smiling and beaming. And she was so calm and at peace. And lots of her family members came into the room and they began fussing about her. And she immediately got agitated, you know, because they were interrupting her conversation <laughs> and she was getting really annoyed by it. And yeah. The family was just trying to take care of her. You know, she needs something to eat, even though she no longer could eat. And they were trying to fuss because that was their way of loving. And I had to finally ask them to leave the room because she was getting very agitated. And as soon as they left, she got peaceful again and she Mm. resumed her, her conversation. But that night, her daughter when her daughter was home, when I would leave and her daughter would come back, she would stay at that bedside every single moment. And she really, really had to pee. So she ran across the hall to pee super quick and came back. And in that time, her mother had died and she felt such guilt. And I said, no, 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 no. They choose their time. They pick their time. Mm. You know, sometimes they don't want to die in front of you. Right. Mm -hmm. They choose their time. And so the fact that she chose to leave in the two seconds that you ran across the hallway, this is not any kind of a testament to you at all. You've been a very good daughter and very attentive and and loving and just know that they leave when it's their time. They'll wait for people to show up because they have some kind of business to take care of um, before they, they go. And they do want to talk and get things out if they can. Sometimes the people, the hardest deaths I've seen are from those people who just can't get it out. They're dying, literally holding on to a secret and the guilt is killing them. Mm. Um, Or they, they just can't have the conversation that they really wish they could have. And they know they're running out of time and it's a terrible feeling Mm. Um, or others who really want to finally have a kind of conversation they've never been able to have their whole life, but their family won't allow it. Yeah. So the really, it sounds so simple, but it's not, it is and it isn't just show up, Mm. show up and serve, serve the person in the bed, serve the people around and service doesn't mean fussing and, or being controlling or, be present. 
and allow for whatever is. Be present and allow. Show up and allow. And if you're in that space, rather than trying to figure out every half second what you should be doing, you'll get cues, right? You'll, you'll learn how to sit with what is uncomfortable. Learning how to sit with what we don't want. We don't want this person to take their last breath. But learning how to sit with what is. Um, it's a powerful lesson that death and loss teaches us. And when we can learn how to sit with what is, and when we learn how to sit with what is uncomfortable, we take back our power over that discomfort driving us to do things like drink or gamble or drug all to excess. Because we're, we're engaging in those kinds of activities to run away from something we don't want to experience to run towards a feeling we want to replace that discomfort with. Hmm. And it never works. Hmm. Well, Lisa, thank you very much for showing up today. I just want to just want to end by um, just honoring you and witnessing you and just saying what great work that you do, great important work. Um, I, I really appreciate you for showing up in this way and talking about what because we talked about with uh, societal conditioning is something that people don't like to talk about and don't like to listen to. Um, so, you know, there was a part of me by through societal conditioning was, was thinking, oh, this is heavy, but actually I don't feel heavy. I feel illuminated. I feel like I've learned a lot, you know, and uh, I just want to thank you for that. How, how can people... How can people find you? And I know you don't just work with people, you work with organizations as well. So just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I work with people on an individual basis in terms of coaching. I'm a trained counselor, but I don't practice counseling. I, I do coaching. So I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching, but I also help companies. I mentor companies through disruption and crisis. Mm. I help them regain their footing and regain stability and deal with, um, sometimes the unthinkable and get back to a place of, of functioning. You know, we go into a place of functional impairment sometimes with loss or catastrophe or crisis. And it doesn't always have to be, you know, such huge things. Sometimes minor disruptions can really stop us in our tracks. Mm -hmm. But when people or organizations are struggling with a disruption or an unexpected loss or change, particularly abrupt change, um, whether it be from divorce or the roof caved in literally because of a tornado or whatever it is, dealing with going through a divorce, dealing with custody issues, dealing with pain and grief and whatever that loss is, be it from death or not, that that's what I, I assist people and organizations with. Hmm. And, um, you, you know, please, you're happy to, um, show my email address, um, so people can, can find me and, uh, you're happy to show my website URL as well. And yeah, people can I will. find me through that too. I'll definitely do that. Thanks for having Lisa. me. I love, yeah. I always love talking with you. Well, I'm going to have to have you on again as well because, um, you know, I, I really want to talk to you uh, sometime in the future about divorce, blended families, all that kind of stuff. So we'll get you on for a part three because you've obviously okay. been on here before. Yeah, but Lisa, nice. thanks a lot. I appreciate it. One thing I also wanted to impart is that, um, as you know, that do I work? I, I do work in the space of addiction in terms of um, the trauma and the havoc that it causes 
the losses and the trauma that addiction, whatever, what type of addiction it is, causes the person who's struggling as well as families. And I work with people in that space to cope with the outcomes of what addiction to whatever can do. Mm. Um, So I wanted to, to put that out there as well, particularly since you talk to a community that is struggling to, um, you know, move away from that. Yeah. By all means, happy to talk with you again, whenever you need. Oh, just one last thing, actually, for everyone listening, for everyone listening, um, Lisa has worked with a lot of our Stripe community. And uh, so we have a lot of testimonials that we can throw your way. She's highly thought of, um, highly sought after. And everybody I've spoken to has got insane value from working with her, um, uh, working through lots of different things, including addiction, the grief of leaving alcohol behind, um, divorce, death, all those type of things. So just email me at thestrivemethod.gmail.com if you want to listen to those testimonials. Uh, and you want to learn more about Lisa's work. Okay. We're definitely going to say goodbye now before I pee myself. Um, (laughs) We don't want that. We don't want that. All right. Much love, Lisa. Yeah, much love. Thank you so much. Folks, that was a deep one, right? A deep one. Like I said, right to the beginning of the show, if anybody listening to that is um, feeling it, is feeling triggered, is feeling raw, feeling super emotional, and you want to talk to somebody about that, email me at thestrivemethod at gmo.com and we'll get on a call and have a chat, right? Um, I hope you understand that whilst this is a very challenging topic for us to talk about, it is a much needed one for us to talk about, right? Really is much needed. Um, And uh, if you want to work with Lisa and if you are um, facing grief at the moment or experiencing it or uh, expecting it, or um, you're in mourning, reach out to Lisa and work with her. Email me at thestridemethod at gmail.com and we'll get you together. She will make a big difference. When I was going through my divorce, if I would have known Lisa at that time, I would have reached out to her, I would have worked with her and I would have saved a decade of pain and misery for me, my ex-wife and my son, for sure. All right. So really look at that option. Uh, For those of you who want to be someone that doesn't drink alcohol or wants to live an amazing kick-ass life coming from self-energy. If you want to be somebody that can wake up in the morning, walk into the kitchen and the kids are going at it, your wife or your husband's going at it, maybe your mother or your father-in-law's going at it, but you're not triggered by any of it because you're in that self-energy, okay, that you're able to create that beautiful communion, uh, intimate communion with yourself and with those around you. If you want to, Learn what your meaning and purpose is and go for it. If you want to be present for children, be the best parent you can be. If you want to have true intimacy and beautiful sex life in your relationships, right? If that is what you want, then one-to-one coaching with a master life coach like myself might be right up your street, okay? Uh, The books, the courses, Strive, it all is amazing stuff, but you cannot get any better than that real close-up one-to-one coaching with somebody who is being exactly where you've been today. So if you want to hire me as a coach, I am taking on clients. Send me an email at thestridemethod.gmail.com and uh, we'll have a chat to see uh, what I can do to help you. Lastly, but not leastly, um, please go to your local podcast player and rate this show for me and review it. I would really appreciate it. If you could do that for me, please, today. Just one thing to serve other people today, 
go and do that. All right. Much love, everybody. Take care and have a wonderful day. Until next week.